Hello and welcome to the second of three podcasts, which explore a range of provocative, innovative, imaginative and rigorous work by students graduating from MA Fashion Curation, Fashion Journalism and Fashion Cultures and Histories at London College of Fashion. My name is Judith Clark and I'm Professor of Fashion and Museology. And my name's Amy Delahaye. I'm Professor of Dress History and Curatorship. And together, Judith and I are directors of the Research Centre for Fashion Curation. This podcast explores the making of the final projects that have been impelled by personal and local community experiences. They reveal, reclaim and communicate hidden histories. Histories that are prompted by personal life stories and place them on the record. And more than ever before, these themes have been foregrounded this year. And although the student cohort chose their subjects and subject interventions before the pandemic, the devastating impact of the COVID-19 virus has undoubtedly fueled these compelling calls for action now. start, it's our great pleasure to be talking to Omolara Obanishola, who has explored the late 1970s and 1980s lovers rock British reggae movement, which she grew up amidst, and the revival of which she's now immersed herself within. Omolara took the fashion cultures and histories pathway, and her project took the form of a written thesis in which she explores this subculture within the context of various family members and their relationships, including that of her mother and herself. First, we asked Omolara to introduce the premise of her project. Yeah, so my uh, MA project was looking at fashion, style and dress within the Lovers Rock reggae scene. Um, Lovers Rock is a British-born genre of reggae uh, that started around the mid-70s. So I was looking at predominantly between the mid-70s and mid-80s. And what I was really interested in was not only the scene itself, which has been largely under-researched, but also the motivations for dress and for personal style and why people wore what they wore and and what they wore and how important it was. Um, I think within that, a a subcontext was really taking an intergenerational look. So I was researching my mother, who was a participant in the Lovers Rock scene, and also uh, the relationship between my mother and her sister, um, and the relationship between my mother and her mother, and I, I think naturally the relationship between my mother and myself as a, as a fan of Lovers Rock as well. So it's very much a personal research journey. Absolutely, yeah. Can you tell us more about how your project manifested? What form did it take? Yeah, so it's it's been quite a journey. I, I started the research for this actually around 2017. Um, so I started around, actually probably slightly prior to, to joining the MA initially, and then I took a partial year out. But over the process from 2017 to kind of rejoining um, and completing the MA, I was still undertaking research around Lovers Rock. Um I mean, I think initially what what it started out was looking at kind of uh, my mother's interest in the scene and, and my interest in the scene. But then I was able to go to Lovers Rock reunion nights. Um, and very luckily so before the pandemic. 
and to be able to observe participants uh, at reunion nights and to kind of get a sense of what it was like during that time. So it became very much a embodied experience because I, as a fan, was going to these reunion nights and doing observations there as well as kind of researching with my mother and, and family members. Could you tell us a little more about your final project? What did you do for it? Yeah, so, so the final project was dissertation-based. Um, and I think in many ways it, it, it really lended itself to the research. I mean, I think there's always been a desire to have a practical and physical outcome. And I think that's where the kind of research will extend to now. But it was, it was dissertation-based and that was for, for various reasons. I think one in part because of the pandemic, um, you know, to in part because I thought it was very important to document and write about these histories and, and people's personal stories. Um, but I think researching the Lover's Rock scene and looking at it from a fashion perspective, there's definitely an element where it's about an experience and it's about a scene. And, and I think going to reunion nights and, and being kind of part of that lends itself to, to becoming something that has to come off off the page. I um, I'm struck between the the difference between sort of nostalgia and something that belongs to you. You know, that that you're claiming something that, you know, from one point of view could be a nostalgic act in terms of looking at, at sort of family history in a very themed way. Um, but you're doing it in a very animated way. And it occurs to me that that there's a, a kind of moment, which I'm sure you're much more familiar with than, than I am, you know, with the screening of Steve McQueen's film, with Grace Wells Bonner's collection, with a kind of confluence of interest um, around the, the relationship between the music and styling. Um, I loved watching the film, I'm a West Londoner, so... <laughs> um, it's it's there were there were lots of of aspects that that belong to a kind of history of neighborhoods as well so an extended um community as well can you tell us a bit about the the relationship between nostalgia and family history and your own idiom and what you're making of it i i think actually that's been a really funny one that for me that's been something that i've tackled and, and quite challenging i you know i think it it says a lot that at the that the end of or well, at the culmination of the kind of dissertation that you know um, small acts was aired. Gracewell Bonner had a collection really inspired by Lovers Rock, and so that I think gave me a a real certainty about how timely this research was, and and how necessary it was. But I guess in in terms of the nostalgic aspect, it's. It's a funny one because I grew up on Lovers Rock and, um, you know, I think by starting the project, it, you know, I came onto the MA not necessarily thinking that this was going to be the first project that I did. Um, and it sort of, there was a kind of seed there and it started to grow and I started to think about the music that I was listening to growing up, which started to be Lovers Rock. But then when I think about my musical interests, you know, a lot of those are based around sound system culture and music and, and you know, Lovers Rock's part of that and, and reggae and, and garage and grime and jungle. 
but even you know jazz and hip-hop is it, there's all a kind of a link so in a way that's kind of a natural thing but there was definitely something in the research and, and I got a sense of and was actually laughed at quite a few times when I'd go to reunion nights that I really felt a sense of being there um, and it's really hard to kind of express, but listening to the music, I really felt the music. And when I would interview people and ask them about things, you know, things really kind of resonated with me. And uh, I would go to these reunion nights and I'd be singing along to all the songs and people would say, what on earth are you doing here? I mean, you weren't even born then. And so I don't know, you know, I, I, I think it says a lot about the need to research and work on projects that really kind of resonate with us um, in, in maybe ways that we can't really translate, but also definitely something about the kind of timeliness um, of this. And, and just lastly on that, I think also because a lot of, there's a lot out there around the Windrush generation, um, you know, across kind of fiction and lots of different outputs. And then most recently in the news, and I think we don't see or hear as much about, you know, the, the children of that generation. And that I found really interesting. And now I see it. And now it's more prominent. And, it, you know, across music and across fashion, there are lots of people within my generation who are really inspired by their parents. But I also thought that was quite important to look at that next generation, um, which isn't documented as widely. I wonder if you could tell us also about the challenges of the project. What were the difficulties that you faced whilst doing it? Yeah, gosh, uh, <laughs> there were a few. I mean, um, timing-wise, in, in many ways, I was quite lucky because I'd started the research uh, before before COVID. So being able, like I said, to go and interview um, participants and, and find participants and, and being able to be in that environment was... Um, you know, an absolute blessing to be able to do that before before lockdown. Some of the some of the biggest challenges actually that I faced were in finding other participants to talk to. And I think that's always a difficulty in research when we're doing interviews. Um, but I think I was very kind of optimistic that my my love and my passion uh, for the topic and for the music would make it easier um, for me to find research participants. And actually it was very difficult. It was, it was very tough. And I think for a number of reasons, I think, you know, in, in one, really for the kind of such a huge difference in, in generation of those participants, I think in being able to get people to understand not my interest in the topic, or why I wanted to talk to them about it, but within the parameters of a master's um, and within the parameters of research. I, th I think that's where it became quite difficult. Um, and, I, and I think simply because for many participants, they didn't really understand why, you know, why it was a, a topic of research, especially something that is so very personal to their lives. And then there were a couple... Um, rather notable people who I spoke to are actually quite against me researching um, this area. And I think, again, it's because it's such a personal history and a, and a personal scene. And, um, 
you know, for me to kind of really resonate with it at a time when I wasn't even there and I wasn't even alive, I can imagine that these histories are very personal to people. Um, and so being able to kind of discuss them and, and wondering where those discussions are going to go or how that's going to manifest is probably quite challenging. So that, that, was, a, that was a challenge. As we went further into the discussion, we thought about the importance of sharing these stories and ask her about it. Like I said, it's an underrepresented area of history that isn't really spoken about. And it is important, you know, it's important that I think people's personal histories and oral histories and marginalised stories are within this field. Um, and, I, and I guess, again, one of the challenges in getting people to kind of talk to me in this way, or not to talk to me, but to be interviewed and to sign consent forms, um, you know, lends itself to the kind of relationship that you need to have as a researcher with a participant and an understanding between the both of you of why somebody's story and why this history is important to be in that arena. So I hope that answers your question. I mean, I think for me, for, for structure, but also I think, you know, why not? Why 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 isn't this a, a history that's kind of documented um, in the way that other stories are or what other analysis is? You partly preempted my next question, which was going to be exactly that. How much was it also a commitment to recording what is a hidden history? And I think you've answered that effectively. I've done quite a lot of oral testimony, and I know that in the process you forge relationships with people. Yeah. If you go to a library, you leave the book behind. You don't have any commitment to the book. Whereas when you're talking to people about their lives, they're sharing something really personal with you. And I think there is a longer-term commitment, a sort of integrity, isn't there? I feel a massive responsibility. <laughs> I feel a huge, huge responsibility. And I remember talking to my, my supervisor about it, and he was sort of like, well, no, this is this is your project and you know you have a responsibility to yourself um to to do it justice but I do I feel I feel a huge responsibility and I don't really know where that's come from but I think the more I started to research this topic and the more I started to talk to people the more I became actually very anxious that these stories are going to disappear um, and this generation isn't going to be with us forever and that this isn't just a crucial part of, uh, you know, black British history in that time period. It's a crucial part of British history and British musical history. And and so I do I do feel a responsibility. And I think actually thinking about Steve McQueen's film Love as well, there's a lot of kind of feedback and commentary from that about how representative it was. And, you know, I think taking on a kind of task where you're talking about people's personal stories and histories is not always going to resonate with everybody in the same way. Everybody wants that depiction of exactly how it was for them. But I think it's important that there are many kind of variations and representations of, of these stories. So I do feel um, a responsibility to kind of share, I guess to share my perspective and my viewpoint on, on the Lovers Rock scene. What would your longer-term vision for the project be? What's your dream scenario? You've done some amazing research. What would you like to do with it? I've, I've, definitely an exhibition. Uh, I definitely would like to write a book, so to, to turn the research into uh, a publication. 
I think an exhibition and, and what would be lovely I think is to is to have some educational outputs from an exhibition so using an exhibition as a teaching resource um because it, you know again as I was sort of going through the process of research and I was sort of making all these links between um artists now sort of UK um grime or rap or hip-hop or even R&B artists now and thinking about you know seeing a lot of shoots and then wearing things that were kind of really similar to the images that I'd seen of um the photographer John Gotto taking for his book Lovers Rock in the 70s and thinking that you know this is my generation actually and you know the, the parents of these artists have have informed what it is that they're doing and so I think bringing it to life visually and in a way that kind of resonates with not only the participants of that scene but their children and younger generations I think um, is the goal and I think that's actually going to be a huge task in itself. <laughs> it's an amazing challenge and an amazing opportunity. Next, we speak to fashion curation student Eleni Chassiotti of Greek origins, who sought to capture her personal experience and the role of memory when visiting five Greek museums. She made a film that examined the ideas of the museum experience, marginalized dress, and the process of looking slowly. She also used creative writing to communicate her message. The latter took on the form of a personal letter to the museum, which will be read at the end of her interview. But first, we asked her to tell us more about her project. I, I guess my project tells the story of, of a personal, of the personal museum experience. And what I did, what I did is that I recorded my visits to five Greek museums that hold dress collections, and I've investigated topics that were raised during the research. Uh, such as the notion of identity and memory and autobiography and I guess the way we relate to ourselves through museums and dress. And after all, I feel like this project is, and I mean my essay as well, is sort of an homage to closer looking and to taking time to experience your surroundings and mat material culture, basically. Um, and then in terms of my, uh, I guess, research approach throughout the course, it was this amazing moment when like we had our first class with, with Amy and we had to introduce ourselves. And I said, okay, well, my name is Eleni and I'm from Greece. And she said, oh, wow, we never had a student from Greece before. And then it clicked, you know, I thought like, okay, if it's not me talking about these thing, things, if it's not me talking about like Greek dress and Greek museum, who is going to be? And um, yeah, <laughs> and so I did this. So from that moment, Eleni, did you feel that the communicating of Greek dress was your, it was your mission? Or did, or did you go away and then come back to this subject? Mm, well, I think from the very beginning, I was really determined that what I'm most interested in is Greek dress and Greek museums, because... You know, I've been living abroad for, for some years now and I always had this feeling that my country is underrepresented and especially Greek dress is underrepresented. 
sometimes you get to choose your topic and some other times your topic chooses you. And I felt from the very beginning that this topic chose me. <laughs> like, I, I don't think I had any other option in terms of, 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 of things I, I really want to know more about. Cause I mean, I like contemporary fashion and I like Japanese fashion and I like, I mean, there are other things I like too, but this thing, I really care about it. Like, I love it. I, I dream about it. Like, I don't know how to say it, but it's something that really makes me feel things. During this podcast, we are going to have an opportunity to hear someone reading the absolutely beautiful letter you wrote. And I wonder if in your own words, you might explain um, to our listeners something about your letter. Yeah, sure. Well, the letter is a letter to the museum. And that's how it's called. It's letter to the museum. And I wrote it because, I mean, in the very first days of structuring the, the project and thinking about my research scope, I kept having this phrase in my mind, dear museum. And it was like, it was almost like someone or something was inviting me to, to write a letter to the museum, to say something. And I felt like I had so many things to say to the museum for some reason. And, the thing is that I've been writing poetry since I was a teenager and I'm, I'm, I'm 26 now. So it's been 10 years in my life that I've been putting myself on paper and I'm expressing myself through, through words. And I guess, yeah, it, it's just a really familiar way of expressing myself, a really familiar process of saying things I might be having a difficulty saying in, in alternative ways. And it's also a really creative way. I mean, it's a, it's this sort of trial and error situation where you can test out things and test out ideas and no one is going to judge you. So yeah, that's why, that's why I did it. That's why I wrote the letter. I thought it, it was amazing the way it was like the curiosity people have overhearing people. And it was like overhearing your thoughts. Um, and sort of looking through your eyes and things that are in a way imaginable in the in a in a kind of poetic sense and so very rarely literalized or the attempt to literalize it um you know hasn't hasn't been um done certainly within our our field um what is the dream scenario for you with this project what what would you like what would you like its its sort of biography to extend into being? What would you like to, how would you like it to manifest itself? Well, I guess I would really love to just make tons of films for museums. Just like go to museums and explore the way I'm visiting them. And I would really love other people to, to record their visits in the same way. I would really love this method because I consider it to be a method for, for researchers as well. Um, and I would really like it if people would go to museums and like really try to have this moment of being with themselves in the museum. So for me, a dream scenario would be to just for myself to continue doing that and for other people to just try it out. Dear museum, this is the story of a personal museum experience. The museum experience is endless. I'm always present in your images because you would be different if I hadn't visited you, if I hadn't walked in your corridors, if I hadn't tried to capture your magic and greatness. 
our first summer meeting defined the next ones, the same way every museum visit defines the next one. I saw empty spaces, empty of people, not objects. Museum objects, poetic, have nothing to do with their quality as objects of use. They have renounced use. They exist and are presented as outstanding adaptions for the conception of the world. The real, the imaginary, the indefinite. The visit is defined by experience, is defined as an experience. How does one feel the experience? How does one experience it? This letter is just a snippet of a visit that lasted just over a week. A constant visit in its fragmentary nature. The intervals between the moments that take place inside the museum are also included in the visit. Define it and shape it. The images that one holds until one arrives in front of the first exhibit are also part of the overall experience. That is why I am describing them to you through these words. The visit is more about the images than the words. That's why it delves into them. It promotes observation, looking, reverberation in front of museum objects, those that create feeling and enhance emotion. I wonder if the same visits would have been different a few years ago. Does the visitor change over the years or the museum? One thing I know for sure, if we close our eyes together and simultaneously imagine that we're looking at one of your costumes, the image we'll see is going to be different than the one I would have seen at some point in the past. This thought reminds me that the past is always an element of the present. The way you and I look at this hypothetical piece of fabric, so well worked by a woman in the 19th century, is determined by other fabrics, dresses and clothes. That's why we recognise that it is a dress. We know the signifier and the signified. The image, but also the essence of an object that we've never seen before. All these thoughts have something familiar. One would say that museums are addressed to our collective unconscious in that something inside us that knows them as always. The museum brings some sort of intimacy, while at the same time, it brings you face to face with the unknown. Do you feel like a stranger in it? After all, this story is a story about museums, about closer looking, about taking time to experience objects, it's a story about dress, dress that's been underrepresented. It's also a story about history, the universal and the personal. Dress that you can now dream of, walk through it, smell it. These images in your mind reveal what's been underlooked, prove the existence of beauty within museum spaces, prove the resilience of dress and that of curators. Almost like a mythical space, the museum space revives its greatness through the people that surround it. 
I'm trying to crystallize the moment, the museum moment. By reviving it, I'm hoping to explain what the moment means. The important moments tell you what to do. Why is this an important one? Because it involves some sort of commitment to what's survived, to what's displayed, to what's beautiful, to what tells a story every time one is in front of it to hear it. If I speak of commitment, I'm speaking of the commitment that requires one to practice the art of closer looking and observing. Observe what survived, what's displayed, what's beautiful. That was really powerful. We now move on to Emily Gallagher, who also studied fashion curation. Emily has a long-term interest in Victorian culture and fashion, and her project was ignited when her family discovered some old photographs of her great-great-grandparents. Emily looked at these photographs through the lens of the dress and was incredibly aware that the sort of clothes that her grandmother was wearing are not the sort of clothes that we see in museums. And she wondered if they're presented in museum collections and set about researching this. We asked Emily about her project and what she'd done prior to enrolling upon the course. Before enrolling on the course, I worked as a styling assistant for a long time and an intern whilst doing my BA. My BA was in fashion journalism. Um, so I assisted stylists at Vogue, Days and Confused. I worked at the Evening Standard for a while. Um, so at those jobs I was doing, I was given thematic briefs and we would find garments to dress models in and do photo shoots. Um, but I wanted to reflect more on the concept behind fashion and dress and why people wear what they wear. Um, so I enrolled on fashion curation. Um, I also had a, an interest, a growing interest in historic dress. And I've always been obsessed with Victorian culture, the weird and wonderful society that it was. And I wanted to explore that more. I knew that and perhaps link it with contemporary fashion as well. And so what do you think motivated your much more precise kind of brief uh, that you set yourself for your research project. What do you think sort of lay behind that? Um, well, I think it was the passion for Victorian history and culture. And around this time last year, my grandparents discovered some photographs of my ancestors, my Edwardian ancestors. Um, so immediately I had an affinity with those photographs and seeing my great-great-grandmother wearing her dress and I did think that women such as her are not represented. I, I personally can't recall seeing clothing that a woman such as her would have worn in a dress gallery or exhibition. So I felt there was a need to delve into that, into that section of dress history. So my thesis was about um, working class dress. It was specifically urban working class dress, um, dated from 1850 to 1910. So that encompasses Victorian and Edwardian dress. Um, it's a, a part of dress history that is 
under-researched in terms of object-based studies because there's a there's been a long um, assumption that working class dress just didn't exist and they wore rags and all of these stereotypes and myths and I just thought it can't be so I was determined to find those objects and I did found about 720 objects out there in England's museums and I know that there is more to be found. Your passion was to document and record working class dress in British Museum collections. Could you explain to us how you did that and what the methodologies you employed to communicate um, working class dress within your project were? Yeah, um, well, to begin, I had come across a survey um, conducted in the 70s by dress curator Avril Lansdale, um, but this included only occupational dress, not working class dress. My definition of working class dress encompasses occupational dress, but not solely occupational, because I, I do believe that, I know that they didn't just wear work clothes. They had personal possession, dress possessions as well. So, Emily, could you tell us maybe what your definition of working class and working class dress is? To define working class, I went back to history texts um, and to trace the definition of the word and the term because it's it's undefined still. <laughs> when I began this project, I defined myself as working class and then when I handed in the project, my definition had changed altogether. I self-identified as a working class, a, a female of working class origin. Um, so I traced the term historically in, in dress history, in social history texts, um, and it was apparent that there is a difference between urban and rural working class. Um, by the end of the 19th century, 85% of the population was urban working class. So those were the people working in the industrial centres, the factories, uh, and their families. Um, their dress was different to, occup to occupational dress because they also wore... But they had also had their own personal possessions um, that they perhaps bought secondhand or were given to by their their manager if they were a servant. Clothes in the museums of England and Wales, but this didn't include working class dress. Um, so the personal possessions are the best dress of those people, and there was no date specific era in her search, whereas mine was Victorian Edwardian. Um, so I sent out several emails, <laughs> well, um, and I started to compile lists of, of the dress that they had. I just contacted curators and I asked them about the working class dress that they had in their collection. Um, on several occasions, I was given <laughs> just a whole list of their dress collection. Um, at that point, I thought it best to devise search terms, and I used these search terms to go through the, the databases that they gave me to find uh, objects that potentially were working class, because we can't be 100% sure, but we can use hints to, come to, to define them as working class. 
Could you maybe tell us what sort of garments you found? Yeah, I think one of the most surprising to many people is a corset, uh, the Pretty Housemaid's corset. That was the cheapest corset ever produced, and it was worn by um, maids, and it would have also perhaps been worn by women in the in the mills, in the textile mills in Manchester, by fisherwomen on the seaside. Um, and then there was many, many clogs, which I attribute to their their permanence, and you know they were made out of metal and wood. And I think that's why they've stuck around so long. Um, and there was many, many servants' dress as well, uniform. There wasn't any dress that maid servants would have worn, maid of all work, but there was there was plenty of of uniforms. You said um, that to start with, you defined yourself as a female of working class origin, and to some extent. Whatever work we do, we always find ourselves there. But your work really was was quite a personal mission, wasn't it? Um, and it was very much about constructing, recording history, what we might have called in the past hidden history. Um, could you say a bit about, you know, you were passionate about it. It, it was political to you. Yeah, I remember... Um... I mean, I don't recall ever, like I said, I don't recall ever seeing a garment that possibly someone like my great-great-grandmother would have worn in a, in a dress gallery or a fashion exhibition. That's my, from my personal recollection. Um, so I felt like there was a, a gap there for, I guess, my dress history to be looked into. And I wanted to know what else might she have had in her wardrobe? You know, there's objects out there that she could have also had. She might have had the, the pretty housemaid's corset. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of the kind of cliches um, around, around um, kind of social history display, you know, the kind of sometimes very um, kind of blunt... Uh, classification uh, reflected in 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 displays. What did you find along the way in terms of the the the, um, the small number that you found that are on display? Was there a way in which they were shown um, that struck you? Yeah, I think many of the um, objects, the working class dress objects, are usually displayed as as relics of an industrial past and rather than the personal possessions of people. And I I found that quite, you know, disappointing in a way. Um, we shouldn't disregard an object just because it was someone wore it for work, it, that it's not, it doesn't reflect their identity because these these people, women in particular, the servants especially, personalised their garments because it was their only way of, of fashioning their own identity. Um, so I think that's definitely something that, needs to be perhaps translated to museum visitors in social history museums. Throughout the project, my, um, my obsession, if you like, with, with servants' dress, like, just grew and grew because I realised that these women, specifically women in my case, I was drawn to them because 
they wore those uniforms day in, day out. And then come the weekend, it was their one chance to wear their Sunday best. And we all have a, a best dress in our wardrobe and we all feel fantastic when we wear it. And, you know, <laughs> so I felt an affinity with those women and the dress they wore. And I used, um, there's a, a pair of dresses in Sheffield Museum um, that have the exact same measurements. One's a servant's uniform and one's a, an everyday garment. So they were clearly worn by the same individual. And then we've got her dual identity right in front of us. And we can see that she's embellished the dress and she perhaps got a second hand. And by embellishing it, was that was her only way to forge her own identity and make that garment her own. And we've, we've all done that. And it just shows that, you know, these things just surpass time. And our ancestors would just as fashionably ambitious as we are. <laughs> Thanks to Omolara Obanishola, Eleni Chasioti, and Emily Gallagher for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Alexandra Szymanska with sound designed by Wilf Petherbury.